Paratopia, it's Jeff Ritzman, it's Jeremy Vaney, it's you, Paratopia. And uh, hi, Jeff. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well, how are you? Good. Hi, everybody. Yes. I thought, Jeff, instead of um, running that lovely woman's voice who does the Cyber Ears commercial, I'd just take a second here to say, in case people are wondering, not that anyone's ever questioned it, but like, you know, you've gotten premium now, and so why would you have an advertiser that... Cyber Ears is not an advertiser with us. We actually uh, just promote them because they're really good at what they do and they're very kind to us and generous. And yes. so we promote them. We you know give them a free ad on our webpage and we give them a free ad on our show because uh, we like to treat those who treat us well well and we like to um, promote that kind of thing. And so... If uh, you want to do your own podcast or do any sort of um, audio that you want to get out there publicly, that is to say, Jeff and I highly recommend CyberEars.com. And if you'll recall where we were uh, previously, we were really unhappy. (laughs) And we were often late getting our show up on a Friday, which you would think that they'd have it settled for Friday because it's a big day. But they always seem to be screwed up on Fridays, you know? And then you'd call and you'd get sent to like some voicemail in Pakistan or something. I mean, it was, it was just terrible. But cyber ears, <laughs> like you always get a human being. Sometimes it's the president of the company. I mean, they're just a very uh, good yes. outfit. And like I said, they've been very generous with us um, and they've not asked us uh, to advertise them. We just uh, like doing it. So that's what yeah. we do. So if you need a podcast, uh, you know, give an email to uh, cyber ears and tell miles, uh, who will probably be the gentleman that answers your email that Paratopia sent you, and uh, we would really appreciate it. Yeah. I don't know that that will do anything for you or for us, but... <laughs> well, it won't do anything for us other than no. Miles, we love you. That's we right. love We love the service, and, uh, and you're, you're a great company. Onward and upward, gentlemen. Tonight's guest is none other than Whitley Streber. And much like last week's guest, if you don't know who that is, get the F out. You don't belong here. Shoo, get! I mean, really. <laughs> that should who? just be his resume. It shouldn't even be like, I've written communion and the wolven and the hunger. I mean, it should just be like, you don't know who I am? F you. You think that's what he writes when he like tries to get a book published? It's just like, Dear Tarcher Penguin, you don't know who I am? F you. Here's my number. Call me. Now, I, I think Whitley is a consummate gentleman when it comes to that. Oh, never mind that. <laughs> but he's written Communion and the Wolven and the Hunger. <laughs> um, yeah, and he's he, uh, he, there's no quit in this man. I mean, he's got books coming out of every orifice. I don't. I don't know. What I'm, I don't know what I'm saying anymore. Jeff, help me. The prolific author doesn't play fetch. <laughs> yes, Paratopia, you will soon learn what I mean by that statement. Mm-hmm. So this uh, this was a really interesting interview, um, as you will hear. I had a little sort of psychotic break or something, a hallucination of sorts during it, which was interesting, not unlike our Colin Andrews experience, except yeah. uh, mainly just me and perhaps Whitley, to the exclusion of Jeff Ritzman. That's right. But once again, I just, I find like I, I get a lot out of talking to Whitley. Like every time I uh, I speak to him, uh, he is just a rich resource of wisdom, you know? And I don't know how much of that comes across ordinarily, I mean, are we just that good, Jeff? (laughs) (laughs) 
No. No. Um, I th- I, Damn it. Uh, <laughs> delusions of grandeur. No, I I think that um, wisdom, yeah, I guess wisdom in, in a certain way, but to me it's that uh, he just finds ways to verbalize the unverbalizable. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, he, he puts stuff into such a He's like the Carl Sagan of abduction. He makes it so anybody can get it. And and for that, I think he is a, a, a treasure in this field for that. Um, and, and he's also able to articulate so well, not only the experience. I mean, that's a given that he can articulate that. I mean, read his books, for Christ's sakes. So you can tell he knows how to verbalize this thing and put it into words that are uh, you're able to comprehend and feel uh, what it's like. But also just in terms of asking him some of the uh, off-the-wall questions that we ask, um, he knows how to answer them, much like Jacques knows how to answer them. And and in such a way that you actually get not an answer you were expecting and one that makes you think past where you even were going. (laughs) Uh, So, I mean, you guys will see in the upcoming interview what what I'm talking about. I mean, he... There's a lot more to this guy, I'm sure, than what we've even read in his books, um, and and it's always a it's always a great pleasure to talk to him. It really is. Yes, and if you want to know all about his books and all about him, you can check out the brand spanking new uh, unknowncountry.com. He's done a complete overhaul of the website, and um, I think it's it's really good. Actually, I think it's. Uh, it's easy to navigate, which is like step one because it's it's a pretty monster website now, and yeah. um, and it's easy to navigate. And I don't see a lot of that out in the web uh, in paranormal world. So uh, yeah. check out unknowncountry.com if you haven't, or if you haven't recently. And what else is left to say? Here's Whitley Strieber. Peritopia. Without further ado, please welcome back our first, our greatest. Whitley Strieber. Whitley, thank you very much for coming back on the show. Well, you're quite welcome. I'm glad to be back. Uh, now, you had written to me um, basically about – you were actually the first person, I think, to write to me about the Emma Woods article in UFO Magazine. Uh, and you had said that, in your opinion, abduction research – there hasn't been any good abduction research. Um, Not yet, no. But it's possible. And then I said, would you like to come on and talk about the possibilities? And you said yes. So – here we are, and I'm thrilled that you decided to do this. So um, tell us, I don't know, wh- where do you want to begin? Do you want to begin with some possibilities? Or do you want well, to be- yeah, sure. yeah. Here, let's first talk about what's been done. Abduction research has primarily centered on hypnotic recall. The theory being that some sort of mysterious mechanism is being used to block the memories of close encounter witnesses. And hypnosis is a tool that can be used to uh, uh, help them unblock those memories and and recover memory. I don't think that's real, frankly. Uh, I don't think it's uh, an appropriate way of doing research. And so I would say that essentially no research has been done as of yet. Well, what about for your case where you had undergone hypnosis? Did, are those, do you still consider those real memories that were retrieved? 
Well, they weren't retrieved, first of all. Uh, there's a difference, and there's some certainly some hypnotic production in uh, in the abduction phenomenon has been perfectly real. Uh, I remembered pretty much everything that I then subsequently talked about under hypnosis, except for a couple of things, and I'll get to those in a minute. But I think it's important to understand that that I was being hypnotized by Dr. Donald Klein, who was a forensic and is still, I think, a forensic hypnotist. And Dr. Klein had many solved cases, to his credit, where he had helped people recall details of auto accidents and so forth, hit and runs, and had been able to use those details. The police had then been able to use those details in their investigations successfully. Dr. Klein worked for the state of New York doing that. He was literally a forensic hypnotist. And with that kind of a record, I thought it was very reasonable that he would be able to help me. Because remember, at the time I went to Dr. Klein, he had been found by Bud Hopkins and Neither me nor Dr. Klein, outside of Bud's hearing, thought for a minute that we were dealing with anything involving flying saucers or aliens. We were laughing at Bud, to be honest with you. Then (laughs) uh, the first hypnosis session occurred, and something that had been troubling me since the previous autumn burst into my memory. And... Now, this was not something that I didn't remember at all. It's something that I remembered, but that I wasn't willing to look at directly. And what a what a good hypnotist can do in a case like that is enable you to concentrate. It can suggest concentration, but not suggest details. So the result was I suddenly realized that all of this effort I had been making. I had been putting up alarm systems, patrolling the house with a shotgun at night. I had really been uh, terribly upset, frankly. And uh, then I was aware that the reason I had been upset was that there were people around the house. And I I began screaming in the hypnosis session, right with Dr. Klein. and, And he was shocked. I mean, I was shocked. But was there, and he was not shocked. Then the next session, we concluded that session after not very long because it was obviously very unexpected. I still thought I had been criminally assaulted. I still didn't think there had anything to do with aliens. Uh, I just didn't believe Bud. I found it absurd. So I went back to Dr. Klein and I remembered very well being taken out into the woods. I remembered talking to people in the woods. I remembered sitting in a circle. I had an odd memory, and it was disturbing, of going up in the air. But I'll tell you what I thought had happened to me. I had written a book published about a year before this called War Day that had been endorsed by Ted Kennedy. And it was a book that had, it was a political novel, and it had put the kibosh on a plan that the National Security Council and Reagan, President Reagan had to 
pass a bill that would have greatly increased the Federal Emergency Management Administration's budget to harden American industrial sites against uh, nuclear war. And, and the reason they were doing this was, if you can believe it, they actually hoped to induce the Russians to fire nuclear weapons at us. And we would then, we, they, because they had information that most of these weapons wouldn't actually reach us because the Russian rockets were in such poor shape. But I, what I did with my book was, knowing this, I wrote a, a story about what a, the kind of damage just even a limited nuclear war could do. And Brent Scowcroft, who was then chairman of the National Security Council, was furious at me. One of Ted Kennedy's assistants called. Ted Kennedy had endorsed the book, uh, called and said to watch out because they played dirty tricks. Then the next Christmas comes, and I get a hell of a dirty trick played on me. Not only that, I remembered someone who was there. This is not in communion because I didn't know what to make of it at the time. I remembered a man at the experience who was... Uh, a CIA officer. I had known him in college. He had gone into the CIA. I didn't. I mean, there were CIA recruiters all over campus at University of Texas in those days. Now, I stayed away from it, but he went in. And so while I was hypnotized, being hypnotized by Dr. Klein, I had talked to my friend about uh, two years before, after his retirement from CIA. Uh, I was looking him up, trying to find him. Getting a lot of disconnected numbers, and frankly, I was ready, just about ready to call the police or the FBI, because I knew about MK Ultra in those days. I knew about the use of hallucinogens, and I thought they damn well tried to drive me nuts. Then I discovered he'd been dead for nine months when I saw him, and that was the first inkling I had that something was really wrong. But none of these memories that I'm describing were generated during the hypnosis sessions, and that's the problem. Hypnotizing and hypnotizing and rehypnotizing people, asking the same questions over and over as has been done, creates an impression in the person's mind that they are supposed to answer in a certain way. And this is why this type of research is not meaningful. Well, what, what would you say that you actually got out of hypnosis? Well, what I got out of hypnosis was more detail and also uh, the, the, an awareness. When I saw these alien figures, I knew they were there. I had, I had told my wife the morning after, I'd asked her first if there had been anything happening during the night. She'd said, no, I'd been quiet. And then I told her I had seen an owl in the house. And I told a big, long story about seeing this owl, even though I was aware of the fact while I was telling her this, that it couldn't have been an owl. I just didn't know what else it could have been because it was something with great big eyes mm -hmm. moving around very freely in the house. And what happened during hypnosis was Dr. Klein's questioning is very subtle and very not leading at all. I came to a more clear detail and, uh, but then the third session we did, a narrative began to develop. And he brought me up and he said, you know, we're finished here. You're starting to tell me a story. But there really isn't a story. Huh. What, what, what you've got so far is all I can honestly say I can get out of you. 
from now on, you're going to be constructing a narrative and it just isn't, this isn't what we do. This isn't legitimate forensic hypnosis. And, but if you listen to hypnosis sessions or read the narratives of most of these non-professional hypnotists who are out there working, that is all they do is narrative construction, story construction. They're, they're, they're getting people to build stories. And I don't think we have any real idea of what's going on, but I do think there are other ways of going about this that aren't as, aren't as uh, uh, uncertain. And I would be the first to say that my own hypnotic recall is uncertain. After all, I saw a dead man when I was in this state. Uh, was, uh, was I mean, I th- saw him, I remembered him before I went under hypnosis, but uh, what was that about? It's very hard to know. Mm. You see what I mean? Yeah. Whitley, would you say that um, that ultimately this whole hypnotic regression thing within abduction research, would you say it's been to the detriment of getting anything really done? Oh, yeah, it certainly has. It's tremendously to the detriment. I think it's been a disaster. But but not, not I wouldn't, wouldn't throw out the baby with the bathwater. I wouldn't say it's all nonsense. Because some of this stuff, especially the things that people say in their first sessions, is probably useful. But there are other ways of going about this, I think, that are much, much more important and much well, more useful that have never been done. Yeah, and probably more solid in in the sense that we can't differentiate the two, uh, one from the other, or most people. Well, exactly. Can't, I, say. I mean, it it we're, renders we're, the entire thing useless to that point. We're we're at sea when it comes to hypnosis. Yes, <laughs> yeah. we're absolutely at sea. We don't know. Like in my own case, I can identify every point on, in my hypnosis that I remembered prior, mm-hmm. but there are certain things such as. He asks me my age all of a sudden because he noticed a difference in my voice. And this is a man who'd hypnotized many, many people. Mm-hmm. And my voice blurts out, I'm 12 in this little Texas accent. Right. And uh, I had no idea. But he later said to me, you know, this has happened to you before because that's exactly the way people who have experienced abuse in their childhoods repeated abuse will do they they begin to float back and forth between sessions without realizing it they revert right it revert um so yeah but go ahead well when it comes to this i mean one of the biggest things i've said for probably the past 10 years is that it's not only been detrimental to getting any real work done but unfortunately at this point i mean what's it been 20 years probably that this kind of thing's been going on uh with with regression being used and so ultimately yeah, I mean, it's it's. I mean, don't you agree? It's kind of painted a wholly inaccurate picture. Uh, we have no of idea. This experience. I mean, oh, we have no idea what's really happening. No idea at all. What? Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have no idea whether or not I was abducted by aliens. I don't know what happened. Still to this day. Hmm. Um. Well, you. Do, I don't think anybody does. You you do uh, have memory of what l- looks on the surface like. Um, medical procedures, but you, of course, famously say we've got to remain open to the questions and you go deeper than that. So do you see that there is this sort of surface level story that is either being concocted through hypnosis or even is just being played out through the actual experience that isn't the real story that you have to dig under the surface of? 
I, uh, what I would say is this. There's no evidence that we know the real story yet at all about any of this. Uh, I don't. I do know the narrative I remember, and I know the narrative that's been repeated. But how many? How true is any of it? How how real is the structure, and what is it of? Now, what were these things? I, you know, it took me 20, more than twenty years. It was uh, two thousand and five. I guess it was twenty years before I could actually say outright I was raped on that night. I said I had a rectal probe, and therefore got into the hideous position of being made a laughingstock for being raped because I didn't say it right. I said it that way. And uh, I, you know, found myself lampooned on South Park. And it was hard uh, to, it's hard to have an experience that traumatic and then see, you know, just become a figure of fun because of it. But in fact, when I went to the doctor, there was a lesion, a rectal lesion, severe enough to where he thought it, it was, he said, it's an injury. He said, I think he said, you've been raped, in fact. And uh, I was furious because at that point, I was sure I had been attacked by, assaulted by a bunch of nuts set on me by Brent Scowcroft. That's what I thought had happened. Hmm. Wow. CIA nuts with uh, with LSD, a la MK Ultra, which I knew all about at the time. It had all the MK Ultra files had all already been released. They'd been a big sensation a few years before that. So, okay, let's get into what we do from here. Uh, where where do you see that we should go from here uh, in terms of research? Well, in the past ten years, some very interesting things have happened. Uh, some of them are in uh, the area of medical analysis, and I'll get into that in a minute. But the other is uh, the area of implants. And Roger Lear has now extracted, I think, a total of 16 implants from people. I have one in my ear that hasn't been extracted, but the doctor who attempted has a very vivid memory and has talked on radio and television many times about what happened when he tried. My point being, now in six of the ones that Roger has attempted to extract have had a, uh, been emitting a radio signal prior to extraction. So it's pretty hard to dismiss this as some kind of a fantasy when you have these objects. Now you also have... 16 people who have had these unexplained objects removed from their bodies. And even more so, six of them who were documented as having objects that were emitting radio signals prior to removal. And I get letters quite frequently, at least two or three times, four times a month, from people who say they have these objects in their bodies. And some of those letters are going to be from people who do. And Roger Lear's got an enormous backlog of such letters that he can't even begin to get to. Uh, these objects aren't uncommon. That's a physical anchor as far as I'm concerned. If you go to the people who have these objects in their bodies, you know you're going to people who have had something very unusual happen to them. Well, I got to say, I, I think there are two problems I see with that. One is... Um, I think it's called an iron channelopathy, which uh, produces usually below below the waist, 
like a ball of of iron that is looks meteoric in a way because it, it's it's all the iron in your body right coming together and so it's it comes up as an unknown iron. So I think you could look at that and say, well, is that what this is? An undiagnosed you know channelopathy essentially. I mean, obviously not something in your ear and something that reacts to a blade, but a certain number of these things. But then I think just another just sort of general problem is, I mean, don't you don't you find that that all of this stuff is so uh, elusive, perhaps by design, that even if we extract implants, we're not going to be able to really say with any you know definition what they are. Well, I, I don't think it's really about what they are. Uh, and incidentally, the of the ones that Roger has extracted, all except one or two were encased in a uh in uh skin in other words they were they they were encapsulated by epidermal material and yet buried in muscle in in usually in the calf muscle sometimes in the foot often in the hand in the cheek in one case in the neck and that encapsulation is a tip-off that this isn't iron channelopathy. It is uh, the reason being that we don't have the genetic material to grow skin in deep muscle tissue. We're not genetically designed to do that. It can't be done naturally. It has to be something that is done by design from outside the body. And not only that, quite a few of these people have found been discovered with little scoop mark scars elsewhere on their body where something has been taken from under the absolute surface layer of the skin, presumably the material that was used to encapsulate the object and keep it from, um, keep it from uh, uh, being rejected by the body. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, that, that's suggestive. But uh, the other question of what do we do with these people is an interesting question, and I think there's an answer to it, actually. Okay. <laughs> well, there have been, and this is still pretty much in its infancy, so it's not ready yet, but we're getting there. There have been studies that have shown that that narrative that is produced by a fantasy that the subject believes to be true, in other words, something that would pass a lie detector test, but in fact does not emerge out of physical events is manufactured is generated memories those memories are handled differently by the brain than memories of real actual physical events and the difference can be seen in an fmri scan or a pet scan Mm -hmm. and i think that careful analysis of these narratives under that type of circumstance is going to enable us to begin to separate the actual the parts of the narrative that involve actual physical experience from the parts of the narrative that are imagined without the without the conscious awareness of the subject mm-hmm. so we would be able to determine presumably whether or not these people were having any physical experiences and what they were uh, to the people themselves, is is there anything that we can do um, outside of hypnosis for them? I mean, you know, people are always going to want to know what happened during their missing time and that sort of thing. Um, what would you recommend about that? Uh, to be honest, I am not so sure that that that's possible. I've never known anyone who was properly treated 
who recovered any missing time memory uh, at all. We don't even know what that is. Uh, I knew a woman in Australia who had had a daylight close encounter of the third kind where she had, uh, she'd been vacuuming her house and was in the living room and suddenly looked up and there were these creatures standing there right in the room. And they eventually mentally overpowered her. And I won't go into all the details, but suffice to say, she ended up with missing time, about an hour and a half of it. She was never able to come to any resolution about what had happened to her. Uh, I know another recent case that took place in Sulawesi in Indonesia, where a man was uh, in an area of Sulawesi where there are a lot of disappearances and uh, to the extent to the extent that there are some people, some villages there that are under really a lot of pressure, but they're so far out in the boondocks, they don't even have roads leading in. In any case, this man was from a city, and he was hiking with six, yes, six other people, I believe, or five other people, perhaps, I forget which, and they all disappeared. And his sister hired a team to search for them, because in Indonesia, there's no... If somebody that happens to somebody, you have to you have to hire a rescue. You the state doesn't provide it, and they searched for him and for his companions for three months, and they finally found him wandering in the forest in an emaciated condition. And he said that they had been followed by these strange little figures, and gradually, as they walked in the forest, they had everything had changed. They began to see animals that they didn't recognize as being part of Indonesian fauna. And he was really very confused about what had happened to him. But he was eventually returned. The others have never been found. And a case like that is probably worth more research because this is a person who has endured something that involves a great tragedy, a tragic experience that is there. You know, in other words, there's no question about it. The other people still are missing. So there's something there. And a, a man like that, I think, could be interviewed under the right circumstances. And perhaps you could come up with some useful production. But I think that if you hypnotized him, you would, you'd be in trouble immediately. I don't think he, I, I don't know quite how to, to say this, but I think that if, if he was interviewed carefully, while under the it, it, while in a PET scanner or as I said an FR, fMRI scanner and each interview was then analyzed to see whether or not and what exactly he was describing that was physically real you could gradually probably build up a narrative of what he does remember that's that physically happened to him well I I can hear what uh what someone would like Dr. Lillenfeld would say about memory, which is that ultimately memory is is fallible and that uh and that essentially we we can't trust a lot of memory, not just hypnotically retrieved but memory in general uh, I agree with that I don't think we can either, yeah, but I, what we can do is we can differentiate between memory that is being generated in 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 a in a, in a by physical Events and memory that right. isn't, and that's yeah. a big step forward. Well, I think uh, the one thing, and I've, I've I've suggested this before, and I'm curious to what your opinion on this would be. Um, 
I've probably interviewed, I don't know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 people who've had missing time in, in different areas of my state, just in Maryland alone. And I'll, I'll give you two examples. One was uh, uh, an older lady. She was in her 50s and uh, her and her husband. It was the typical story. She was They were driving along the road. They saw a bright light. They thought nothing of it. The car stalled out, and um, and they ended up losing somewhere in the neighborhood of an hour and a half. I had another one where it was a, a man who was probably well. I was, I think I was twenty four, twenty five, so that would have made him around his early forties. Actually, contacted me about a missing time event where he had been at a local schoolyard near some, uh, I don't know, like a playground type atmosphere with a sand pit and that sort of thing. Uh, and he actually had a mark across his forehead, across his brow. It seemed to be this ridiculously straight line. He had almost two and a half hours of missing time. And what I did with both of these people was to, um, uh, although it was much more difficult for the female uh, to go back to the area where this happened, to pull the car over and to just talk to them and not use a standard form of questioning but rather just walk them through it. Uh, and I was shocked by how much that she began shaking and remembering on her own without the, you know, without anything, just being literally in a, in, in a, uh, a safe environment with someone like me that she trusted to talk to her about this and not be ridiculed and so on and so forth that she could remember openly. Now in the, in her case, she remembered what I believe is a legitimate event, um, of which there are still small pieces that were not remembered. The the male, uh, and I only laugh about it because we both laughed about it. He was standing at the edge of the playground, and he saw a light in the sky, and he couldn't figure out what it was. And about that time, he said, something brushed by my leg. Uh, and then he remembered nothing. He woke up next to the park with this mark on his head that he didn't know where it had come from, and he had lost two and a half hours. And what ended up happening was he remembered that he caught his foot on a tree branch and snagged his shoe. And when he bent over in the dark to tie his shoe, he whacked his head on one of the jungle gym bars and knocked himself out. And he remembered this. So I think half the time, if we would just, talk to people, take them back to that area, take them back to that space and get into a dialogue with them that didn't necessarily lead into question or just say, what do you remember? We're here. You're safe. You're with me now. What's, what do you remember? Walk me through it. And it's amazing. I found what people will actually remember on their own. Uh, you know, that's very, do you very agree with that, or or well, I don't? I don't. I can certainly respond to you. I think it's a very good idea. Uh, I've never done it. I, I guess I've done it myself accidentally by returning to the woods where I used to, where I've had my first close encounter many times, mm-hmm. and meditating there. And in fact, in in fact, encountering the visitors there sometimes with other people. Right. But so yeah, I've done it, but I didn't. I never thought of using it as a research technique. I think it's a it's a wonderful idea, and it's well worth exploring further, especially because once you had that narrative, then you could 
repeat the questioning once we have got the money and we're sure that we are in the right hands mm-hmm. and we have re- reliable methodologies, which are not quite there yet, repeat the questioning in a situation where we can tell the difference between fantastic confabulation or unintentional confabulation sure, and real memories. Sure. Right. Yeah. Round robin questioning, much like the police would do. Um, you well, know, it's it pretty helpful, not only for sightings, but also probably for this as well. Well, I think, though, that uh, it's important that the atmosphere be one of safety. I wouldn't say I, I've never been interviewed by the police, thank God. But uh, <laughs> uh, I, I wouldn't think that would be a particularly particularly comfortable atmosphere. Right, right. Well, when you when you were up at the cabin, I mean, we used to email back and forth, and you probably have no memory of this at all, but when you were on AOL, we used to email back and forth uh, quite a bit. And uh, I remember you talking about the cabin quite a lot. And uh, when you were at the cabin in, in a relaxed state, if that was possible after you recalled what you did um, about being there, did, were you ever just walking about the house making a cup of coffee and bing, there it is. You remember something completely out of the blue that you weren't even going for. You were just, it just all of a sudden was there. Once in a while that happened, not at the cabin. It happened at, it it may have happened at the cabin. I can't say it didn't, Mm. Uh, but it happened in, in other circumstances, certainly. Most of it had to do with my childhood, Mm. and it began to happen when I moved back down to Texas from New York with the purpose of, in part, because we were compelled to leave, and in part because of the fact that I wanted to, to, excuse me. Hello? What happened? I'm here. Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I had, uh, I have to sneeze. We're having a dust storm here. Uh Uh-oh. Um, so I hope I didn't. Uh, I hope you're recording this, aren't you? Yes. Good. No, I, I turned off. I didn't off hear my, the sneeze, though. So. No, no, you didn't hear the sneeze because I turned off the mute on my mic. Turn oh, on the go. mute on my mic. In any case, uh, when I went back to San Antonio, I began to have flashes of memory that were quite vivid and unexpected, but also very disjointed and confused because they came out of childhood and. You know, the memories that are preserved from a time when a person has very little contextual information anyway that are about extremely strange experiences are going to be quite confusing and confused, quite distorted. So uh, they were hard to pin down. But yes, I do know what you mean in that sense because proximity to those places did bring memories back. And it, it was interesting, though. It felt like these were things I always remembered. I, I just sort of sort of re-engaged uh, with the memories. It wasn't like they were, it didn't feel like they were recovered. It felt more like uh, I was simply bringing them forward again. Yeah, yeah. I, I've not too awfully long ago related to Jeremy that when I was in Gulf Breeze, Florida, that... Uh, that I had sand in in the bed where it shouldn't have been, uh, had not been on the beach, had not been anywhere, um, 
Uh, and this is, it, in fact, this is when I recorded the the, the the object during the conference, which you were in the cafe when I recorded it. <laughs> right, uh, I remember yeah, that. Yeah, you and Jim Mars. I mean, right, and, we were sitting there, but I was, I knew the visitors <laughs> were there. I could feel them. I was telling I, Jim all about it when you walked in. <laughs> and I was like, okay, so, you know, what's with the sunburn on half my face and what's with the, the sand in places that it shouldn't be? And and, and for no apparent reason, after we recorded a program one night, and I don't even remember who the guest was, Jeremy, but uh, I I have this memory that is only the briefest of flashes of standing on the beach, uh, and there's something just over the water, just over the breaking waterline, and it's in the air, and it's revolving, and that's all I got. But it feels horrifying. And it feels viscerally real. Uh, and I have no way to qualify it. I have no way, I have no memory past that. Uh, but it very much felt the same way as that. Uh, yeah, you knew that. Yeah. <laughs> you knew that. Exactly. You, of course, you knew that. It's not really a, it's not something you're rediscovering, but just something you're looking at again. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, it would be very interesting, wouldn't it, to be able to narrate that in, a situation where you could know how your brain was actually constructing the narration. Yeah, where it was coming absolutely. From, where it was coming from. Yeah. Well, Whitley, uh, you said that you have a new book that you're working on that, that involves mm. some of this stuff. You have a lot of books, don't you? Because I saw you have a sequel to Communion. You have a fiction book called Hybrids, right, coming out? Hybrids is coming out in it's April. It's like a Streber the, renaissance going on. The key right. is coming out. Well, you know, the older you get, the more you've – and you've got a lot to say, the, the faster you start working. Um, the key is coming out in, from Tarcher Penguin in April. Uh, they're publishing it finally. A, a, a publisher is actually publishing it instead of just being on my website. And I'm working on a new book, a sequel to Communion. Uh, Communion had two follow-on books, Transformation and Breakthrough, as the experience continued. But now it's I'm able to look back over the whole over a whole lifetime and to try to provide some kind of a coherent memoir to a, 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 a as it were a punctuation mark in my life perhaps a semicolon but probably a period in that I'm 65 <laughs> <laughs> so in it, so I'm working on that as well yes and uh, you've also relaunched unknowncountry.com which looks well, we've fabulous. relaunched it yeah oh thank you we've relaunched it as a new website and um, it's getting, if you can believe it, at 10,000 visitors a day. Awesome. Uh, yeah, which is good because, you know, the, the website provides a lot of a lot of information and it is credible. It, it isn't, you know, we don't have, we have an, a section called out there on the website where they put up stories of UFO things and so forth from all over the world. And now they're graded from A to D. So you can you can look at, read the story and you can see what our people think about it. And, you know, when they, some of them are very knowledgeable in terms of their understanding of videography and so forth. And uh, so it's an interesting site and it, I hope it's a site that helps more than it harms. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it does. I don't, I don't think you have to worry there. Um, well, good, good. Here's a question for you just about all of this research. Um, you know, we just got done interviewing Jacques Vallée, and um, so we, we read his book, Wonders in the Sky, and of course it really hits home that something has been going on forever. 
Um, and, and yet hypnosis, it seems, outside of like wanting to help people, of course, seems to be a tool to research um, within the confines of this is an alien phenomenon that we have to get to the bottom of, you know, that's been going on since the 40s. Um, it's think, a phenomenon. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I mean, do you, do you think that's true? Do you think that, that even just the use of hypnosis to retrieve allegedly, you know, to try to retrieve missing time or memories to construct what are these people doing to us since the 40s? I mean, do you, do you think that that whole thing is so wrong that, that even on that level it needs to be revised? Did that make I sense? I think we need to bring this into question more clearly than it is now in question. And I think Jacques' new book certainly is illustrative of that uh, because, as he pointed, pointed out in Passports to Magonia and now also in this book, uh, Passports to Magonia, Passport to Magonia was a seminal reading experience for me. Uh, it was the first time I realized that I was dealing with something that has to do with the human condition not necessarily uh, uh, the arrival of alien scientists from another planet in flying saucers, but something that is much more intricately embedded in our experience. And however, I will say this, that it seems possible, I wouldn't say this is certain, that it is much more extensive now than it was in the past, or if not more extensive, then more noticed that that something is changing, whether it's us or the experience, I don't know. But certainly uh, it was not true, for example, in the 15th century that thousands of people were reporting experiences like this. There was a scattering or smattering of reports that were reinterpreted in, in the context of local folklore and belief. There was a lot of material starting in a few hundred, about in the 14th century and then going up through the 19th and into the early 20th century of, uh, of the, of the uh, fairy faith uh, in, in Northern Europe as well. Uh, and how many people were involved with that, I don't know. But I do know this, that both experientially and in terms of the what, what is actually happening, what's happening now is an extension of what has always been with us. There's no question in my mind about that. This is something that is part of us. Uh, and I, I have a, a speculative journal entry on my website that uh, right now called, Are We Part of a Super Civilization? In other words, is there some much greater entity that we are part of, that has always been here, but is about as visible to us as the modern world is to a troop of chimpanzees living in the jungle in Africa. There are questions and indications and suggestions and things that seem a little off, mm -hmm. but we have no idea where we really are, what we are, or exactly why it's like this. Well, yeah, and of course, one of the most brilliant things you've ever said is that this may be what the face of evolution looks like when applied to a conscious mind. And I wonder, do you think that it is always going to be that way? Do you think it's a perpetual dangling carrot to try to figure out what the origin of this is and, and oh, no. all of that? Or do you think that we are going to eventually know that? I've solved the mystery of that statement, and it's correct. Uh, we, we are being, with exquisite care, we are being placed in question 
in two different ways, one of which strengthens the left brain, one of which strengthens the right brain, and that those changes are inheritable. In other words, they, 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 go, they, they become part of one's, not of everybody's, but part of many people's DNA, if you will, and are inherited. They go down from, from line to line. The, uh, and I think that, that, for example, this amazing theater in the sky and the way we, the abduction phenomenon that we're talking about recedes, the way it all recedes before us, the closer we look at it, the more it comes to be a kind of a Fata Morgana. It is like a mirage uh, that we can never quite touch, can, can never quite pin down. This, interestingly enough, can be seen neurologically to strengthen the, the, the logical part of the mind. Surrealistic experiences strengthen the logical part of the mind. And so something, whether this is just us seeing certain unresolved aspects of being and reality, or if there is somebody there pulling the puppet strings or not, nevertheless, the mystery is causing the mind, the brain, to evolve and change. It's making people better. Well, you might not believe this, but as you were speaking, uh, I just perceived like everything on the computer to just go blah, and I thought I lost the call, and I realized it was just my like a perceptual brain fart or something. So, I, <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I don't that. know when that happened, but while I was talking, the screen on this computer suddenly got very dim, and it's still dim. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> Maybe confirmation only comes in those sort of subjective no, ways. Well, oh, don't worry. We've we've been there to shut down quite a few computers. So. Yes, that's, that's true. We shut down, <laughs> oh, down Colin Andrews' computer. Back in the old days, I used to blow them all the time. I had a guy who came in almost every week with a new motherboard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I guess maybe I'll, I'll just ask you one final question, and then if Jeff has anything. Um, and I don't even – I hope this doesn't sound macabre, but what do you think your legacy in this is going to be? What would you like it to be? What I would like my legacy to be would be two things. One, an awareness that there is really a mystery. And two, uh, good questions that, that, that people would say of him, of me. Well, he asked good questions and he – was rigorous in not answering them if they couldn't, if they actually, there actually weren't any answers. But right now, this is all rejected knowledge. You ask any scientist you meet on the street corner, and they're going to tell you, it's nonsense. Flying saucers, UFO people, forget it. Go to any reporter, not all, but I mean 90% of them, they'll say the same thing. And uh, the average person, uh, as is evidenced by what just happened in Denver recently when the uh, initiative to create a, a, a UFO committee in the, in, in, in the city of Denver, uh, I've forgotten exactly what it was called, was overwhelmingly defeated, 120,000 to 20,000. And not just defeated, but just crushed. And that's where we are now. Most people don't believe anything is real here. If I could leave a legacy of genuine question, I would be very satisfied with my life. 
Well, as far as useless knowledge goes, let me ask you this. In terms of where we go from here and how we go, there is, of course, going to be huge resistance to the notion uh, that the regression hypnotherapy field has not yielded the best data in the world, and I'm being kind, okay? Um, the people, unfortunately, who have undergone that, uh, as Dr. Lillenfeld has told us, as others have told us uh, in that field, those memories that were generated and or created by cultural contamination, leading questions, and the battery of other problems, uh, unfortunately, have given these people memories that are every bit as real uh, to them, to them, as a real memory. And so how do we counteract the venom that is no doubt going to fly and has been flying uh, around this to genuinely try to educate people in, in the right way or, or in, in the notion of saying we can't hang our hat on this anymore. It's time to grow up. It's time to um, put foolish things away, as they say. Well, I think one of the things that's important to do is to look at the scale of this always, mm-hmm. the, the, the size of the experience and the complexity of it, the richness of it. It is an experience that involves, after all, UFO sightings, close encounters of the third kind, things like animal mutilations and crop formations. There are all kinds of anomalies that have some kind of connection that we don't fully understand. Mm -hmm. And looking at it in terms of this scale is very important because then you, you, you gain a perspective on it that says, hey, wait a minute, no matter how poorly or how well various aspects of this large question have been addressed at different times by different people, the question still is real. Mm-hmm. There's too much of it not to be real. There is a question here. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's where we need to be. I, I don't think that we've ever had certainly the resources. And in fact, not until just very recently, we began to acquire the skills to do any actual useful research when it comes to the close encounter witnesses. We're a little better off with the UFOs because there is a substantial amount of professional observation, as Leslie Keene pointed out in her recent book, but that's not all. There's much more Mm -hmm. of really, really high-quality observation. Just acknowledging the reality of that observation that someone like Paul Hill, who was... uh, NASA's chief engineer for a long time mm-hmm. has he wrote uh, unconventional flying objects, which is uh, of about his own UFO uh, encounters, and wasn't able to publish it during his lifetime. Right. Now it's out, and you know it should be the reality should be acknowledged, and it can be. But it's important to look at to to take the perspective of scale and to say, of course, any mystery. Anything unexplained uh, bleeds off into folklore unless it is addressed with discipline, and that has not happened yet. Yeah, I agree with you there. That's it for me. Jer? Um, well, you told us you'd give us a half hour, and you gave us almost an hour, so <laughs> I don't want to be too greedy. <laughs> How did I do that? <laughs> I thank you oh, very it's much. it's interesting, and thank you. 
thank you yet again for uh, not just doing the show, but for re- really putting it on the line uh, with your own life and your own reputation all these yeah. years. I really uh, will always appreciate that. Absolutely. Well, thank you. I, I wouldn't say it had been easy <laughs> because it hasn't. <laughs> Hi, I'm Dennis McKenna, and you're listening to Jeff and Jeremy on Paratopia. Uh, so did Jeff. So did you. How'd that go? I think it went rather well. It went smoothly. It did, yeah. <laughs> Whitley seems a lot happier this time. No? <laughs> yes. Yes. It also a little felt more centered. conversational, did it not? It felt uh, it felt good. I felt like yeah. listening back to it, I, as always with Whitley, learned something. Mm-hmm. I learned that a dog can't look into your eyes for very long because it becomes uncomfortable because you know things it doesn't that's right that's a brilliant guy there you know now anybody can say what they want to about some of his associations and some of the things she that he said online and you know i whenever i stop by above top secret and i see the name streber brought up um i think i see a great number of kind of unfair comments uh, uh about him but, but in in his defense he like i've said before i i think that he is uh just a very trusting guy and uh, uh how is anyone on above top secret skeptical of anything uh, anyone uh, says <laughs> what i can't trust the streber guy we've got to get back to these moon anomalies i mean come on right <laughs> Well, I mean, I just I see an These inordinate are amount. These people who adored J- John Lear for years, right? That's correct. Yeah, yeah. I, that's it's a very strange place over there. Um, but you know, it, it's one of those things you really need to to interact with him and to talk with him to really get a sense of what kind of guy he is. And I think he's a very deep thinking guy. I think he's an incredibly intelligent man. And and to make the analogies that he does is, I, I, I mean, I, I'm I'm teasing about the dog thing. I mean, that is a brilliant, brilliant way to look at that. Um, and I was really, I was really moved by that whole passage there. I, I, I found that really interesting. And I actually tried it with Indiana, my dog. <laughs> Did she look at you? No, she won't look at me in the face. Well, but can you blame her? Well, you know. I think dogs, for the most part, are one of those creatures that uh, either they want to look at you because they're fascinated by you or maybe because they just can't figure your ugly ass out. <laughs> so <laughs> make of that what you will. Hmm. Well, um, I also I found his um, everything he said about his own hypnosis sessions fascinating. I mean, I didn't even think about. Well, I mean, how could I? Right. I don't know anything. Uh, but I didn't even think about, um, you know, after two hypnosis sessions, you're done. Uh, now he had said, so let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater because some of this stuff can be real. But the problem is unless, um, one of these book authors says, okay, here's the information I got from the first session or two, and here's the rest of it. We can't know that. So you kind of have to throw it out. Mm. At least in terms of studying this stuff. Now, as I've, I've been maintaining that, uh. 
you know, it's up to the individual, right? What you want to believe about your own experiences um, if you've had hypnosis or uh, as a reader, what you want to believe about all of this stuff, um, keeping everything in mind. But I think as far as the actual study itself goes, um, even Streber is on board that we need to just toss it out completely. And I think with that, uh, unfortunately, we do need to toss out all of the book knowledge that we have. Because again, it's not. It doesn't say, yeah. These are the first two things where we just got details on on things that we already remembered uh, straight up, and and here's where the story be- begins. Here's where the <laughs> the weaving of fact and fiction comes into play. I mean, we just don't know that, so you do have to throw it out, right? Well, I think you have to throw it out for no other reason but that you cannot differentiate. Between the two, you can't differentiate what's confabulation or what's contamination or what's cultural uh, biased or leading question biased or fantasy based versus what the actual experience is. And and I just want to bring up one thing because I got an email from somebody a couple days ago asking me about uh, you know people who do hypnosis for the sake of you know I think uh, Whitley m- mentioned something about. Um, the the man who regressed him did it for the state of New York in helping people rec- recall accidents and crimes and that sort of thing, uh, and and I don't know that it's any more valuable for that. But let's let's look at that for a second. You're talking about an event that happened in what we would assume is a normal state of mind during waking hours, uh, not in the presence of. The unknown. This is about daily life. Could you recall something being hypnotically regressed about a traffic accident that you were in or about a traffic accident that you witnessed? I don't know. I think one of the big things we got to keep in mind when we're talking about this stuff is that we're talking about an experience that happens on the very limits of your own perception. And that said, it to me is a completely different I mean, number one, you're in an altered state. Hypnosis, people could call an altered state. Um, I, I don't know how people can make that analogy. Well, it works for this, but it, no, we don't know that it works for uh, waking conscious recall of an event that happened in daily life. Well, here's but what we have to really think about is is that we're talking about an event that is so far out there that we don't even know how to approach it. Yeah, but and it, so to use that same tool is kind of nonsensical are, are, are these um are these people even still employed these uh hypnotic investigators for because you know since what is it 96 or 97 uh no court in the western civilization i was going to say in the western hemisphere but in in western <laughs> civilization right in any western country uses it any since the since you know 96 or 97 allows this to be used in court yeah so there's got to be some reason for that, right? <laughs> uh, so, I, I mean, do police, do forensic investigators, do that? Do they still use this, even though it's not allowed in court? I mean, they they do still use lie detector tests, right? So, uh, yeah, I would assume know. that they probably still use it, and, and probably in with the same notion as George Hansen has told us about that police departments will occasionally employ a psychic to work on a murder case or a cold case. So, I mean, is it taken any more seriously at that point? Than something like that, I don't know. Um, I mean, certainly it being inadmissible in court is, is a big blow, and I have to wonder if that wasn't 
or didn't come out of the whole satanic ritual abuse fiasco with hypnosis. I have to wonder if that wasn't a byproduct of that being unfurled. Well, it could be, but I'd also read um, studies where, you know, you have like two kids who remember something in childhood and the parent and -hmm. they remember totally different things under hypnosis, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Yeah. And so, and then the parent can go, well, that happened or that didn't happen. Like we're talking like, when I was three years old, I remember this, and right. the mother may have a record of it, or may have kept a diary, whatever it is, you know. And it won't be the same thing, but they'll swear that's the memory, and it won't be the same thing. So, I mean, there are studies like that that have been done. Um, so I don't know how you argue that really, along with the satanic yeah. abuse stuff. Um, yeah. But I got to say, I I did like uh, his idea of the the PET scan um, or the fMRI. I mean, I, I yeah, that's a thought. Yeah, I had heard of that before. I just uh, I'd forgotten about it. It's something fairly new, you know. If you can parse out what's a an actual memory that physically happened to you, then great. Why not? Why not hook us all up and see what's what? Yeah, I, I, see, I don't know anything about that, so I'm, I I can't really comment on what I think about it. So it. I mean, if if it lends some kind of, I I would seriously have to talk to like people of the caliber of Lulenfeld about that and say, is is this really, you know, what this is about? Is this really? Because if not, why are they not using that as a lie detector test? Or well, he did know, say they were just on the sort of cutting edge of this thing, so I don't think right. They, probably don't have all the bugs right. worked out just yet. Oh well, I mean, knowing how technology goes, it'll probably not be that long before they have got something like that that can measure impulses in the brain and firings of the brain to tell you if someone's being truthful, if or if th- something is confabulated, or even if they're mentally ill. Um, that's probably on the horizon for everything. Uh, I'm still of the opinion, as Lillenfeld said, that memory in itself is ultimately fallible. And like you mentioned about the mother and child thing where they, one remembers something completely different from the other. Um, I think memory is completely fallible. And I think that everybody knows what I mean when I say when you have a memory that you actually remember, there's a feeling to that and there's a, uh, a, a feeling you get in the pit of yourself that you just know that's what you remember and and that's it. Um, where some things are hazy, like there are parts in high school that when I went to a reunion, people brought up and I was like, I, I sort of remember that, but I, I don't, I don't quite re-. And then maybe a week later, something sparked my memory on that. I went, you know what? That's right. Because then I did this, this, and this afterward. So I, I made some kind of connection in there in the course of the chronology of my life that made me remember a certain instance. And then I really recalled it clearly. I, I think, again, if you out there listening and, you know, if you've had an experience where you feel something odd happened to you, go back to that spot and um, uh, about the same time that your event happened and just walk it and just kind of contemplate what you do remember. And see if anything clicks in for you and see if anything happens for you. And, you know, I did want to say that someone was was talking to me on the phone the other day about uh, how can you tell someone, how would you qualify someone as an experiencer or how would you qualify someone who's just deluding themselves for whatever purpose that they might have? Um, 
for for desiring to have this kind of thing going on in their life. And I said, well, a la George Hansen, I've started asking different questions. Um, you know, what was going on in your life? Was there change? Was there upheaval? Those sort of things. Uh, when these events happened, were you living a regular lifestyle? Were you, or were you just all over the place as far as sleep pattern, as far as eating and all of that? I don't know certainly that it's foolproof, but I think it's certainly something that if you're out there and and you're interested in talking to people who've had this experience and trying to maybe parse them out a little bit as far as who you might put a little more stock in, I would seriously think about those questions and I would start thinking about as you're perusing the net and you're reading accounts of sightings and you're reading accounts of uh, of abductions or uh, not even abductions, but just some sort of paranormal event in general. Um, start asking, asking those kind of questions. Forget the event. Put the event aside for a second and start asking those other questions and just see what I'm talking about when I talk about the, it rings. I mean, George definitely hit the nail on the head, and you will find that a lot of these people were out of their element, were out of the routine, we're in that between place, and um, I don't think it's a way we can necessarily, you know, approve or put that stamp of approval or denial on someone. But it, it certainly seems to to me that it would be valuable for some application within this. Well, I think it also depends on who's asking, because I take for granted that people have good BS meters, but um, most people in this that I've met don't, um, and. The reason is because they don't want to. And so I think you really have to examine yourself as the examiner. How is it that you hear? How is it that you hear someone's story? Um, Are you listening to it because you want to go, yes, 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 that's it. Or yes, tell me more. Mm -hmm. Um, Or are you really listening to who this person is that's telling you this and and all this? Um, I mean, it's all subjective. There's no no hard and fast rules here, but no. One thing that you and I have talked about privately is, you know, in, in discussing people who have claimed to have this experience and you'll say to me, well, that just doesn't – it doesn't strike me that that type of person would have this experience because they're not – I don't even know what the right word is – smart enough, aware enough, something to where this phenomena would not be interested in them. <laughs> There's something, you know, that doesn't ring true about them and I wonder if that's not true where – and ties into what Streber said about – um well, let me just let me preface it what I'm about to say by this. I thought when when he when I asked him um about the the face of evolution, you know, applying itself to a conscious mind and he said, "Oh, I have an answer to that." I got really worried cuz as soon as someone says, "Oh, I've I've got a definite answer and and it's right." I mean, right. go, "Uh-oh." <laughs> right. But I think that it was right. Now, that doesn't mean that's the whole story of this thing, but I think what he said was absolutely correct and I had my own little personal confirmation here when I hallucinated as he was saying it but uh but if you take that if you take what he said which is essentially they're giving us abstract experiences to uh work out rationally therefore building up you know our left and right uh hemispheres of our brain then does it not hold true that if you meet somebody who is a complete fruit loop uh (laughs) that they wouldn't be a fruit loop if they were the type of person who were having their their brain exercised thus Huh. Like that's, a that's, that's, that's a thought. That's 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 a thought. Um, 
I mean, I, I haven't necessarily put it exactly the way you said it, that I don't think people would be involved in this because they just don't seem to be you know, on the ball enough for it. I think it's more that I just kind of get a feeling of something's off or something's not right, or you can tell that they're a little too – they're not curious enough about it or they're not fulfilled enough uh, – or they're too fulfilled by it, I should say. I guess is 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 how I look at it. I I don't know. I just get an immediate sense from, from certain people. I mean, I I mean somebody that uh, uh, is on our message board uh, related uh, our our members only message board related a uh, a couple of instances, and I'm like, you know what? That's that's it, man. That's that rings for me. That not not that I've ever had an experience like that, but the way it's articulated and the way it's questioned and the way it's so damned effable <laughs> to them that they just can't figure out, like they can't put their finger on it. And that, that holds a certain amount of uh, validity to me when I'm listening to people. Um, uh, whereas, you know, there are, there are people who seem just a little too, I've got it all figured out. I know what this is and I know where I'm coming from and blah, blah, blah. You wonder about how different people deal with it. That's that's for sure. But there's something about it when people voice their deeper, more private thoughts about it. That's kind of what this evokes in people, I think, is to go deeper in discussion about it and deeper into the possible meanings of it and not and reject the face value. That's that's where I tend to my ears tend to perk up like a dog. Uh, but Jeff, there are some people who, uh, like you're saying, they they lack the the intellectual curiosity or the sense of wonder about it, um, so or aggravation. They, yeah, well, if they're not so, if they're not experiencers, what are they attracted to this for? Why would they burden themselves with this? Or is it not even a burden? I mean, what do you think they get out of it? Besides um, the normal stuff, besides like you know a shot at fame or you know whatever they think they're going to get. Um, you know, in terms of <laughs> fame, remuneration. Uh, I think that it, it's just, it's one of these things where, again, I'll mention his name again on this show, Russ Estes, who will unfortunately never be a guest on this show since he's passed away. But um, you know, he made a comment to me that um, uh, there are a lot of shady people attracted to ufology, and there are a lot of people who are. Uh, desperate just for acknowledgement on their own. There are people out there who are just um, looking for something to fulfill their lives or looking for something to have in common with other people because maybe that their life doesn't have a whole lot of promise and maybe a career or um, family or something like that. And and I think, again, this this field tends to be a little bit more accepting of any horrible tale someone might have to tell, whether it be a ghost or alien abduction or any kind of thing like that. And so you get, I think, a certain brand of people that, I mean, I've personally run into these over, you know, the past couple decades of, you can immediately tell who the people are who are, uh, who just are desperate for interaction with other people and to have something in common to talk to a total stranger about. Uh, I think you're the kind of guy who literally... It's like 
I wouldn't have to pay you 50 bucks to go up to a guy on a corner and go, hey, what's your name? I'm Jeremy. Yeah, you know, I mean, back in college, we used to like dare each other to go talk to somebody on the street who uh, they didn't know. You know, like just go up and introduce yourself. Like, there's five bucks in it for you if you do it. You know, uh, you know, you wouldn't have to pay Jeremy Vaney to do that. He would just do it. He would go, yeah, okay, I'll do it. Um, I, I think the the paranormal in some facet helps people to break down. Maybe a little bit of being withdrawn and not sociable. Maybe they there's certain social interactions that they don't have, and that is kind of their. Uh, it's it's the key to unlocking some sort of social connectiveness well, with and, other people. And, and there, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, like, again, well, it, it may it, we may call that detrimental to what we're doing here, but just you can't know, let a brother get a word in edgewise. No, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Don't don't take it in like I'm saying that this is not wrong. It is, but I, I think it's unfortunate that it pollutes the pool. Yes, but on the other hand, if if it makes people connect with other people, that's okay by me in that way. Uh, and I know that's kind of it's a double edged sword, but um, well, it depends on how you're communicating. I mean, some people. The thing is, it's so wide open. It, it's, you know, especially with the internet, which is so accepting of a wide range of ways to interact. I mean, you can be preacher, mm-hmm. you can be, uh, you know, the angry guy who just takes everyone down. Or like, you know, we opened up our, our message board for a couple of days for everyone to, to be able to, you know, read and write on it. And, you know, mm-hmm. pretty much immediately you get the anonymous guest who just comes on and just says antagonistic stuff to try to, you know, goad you into a fight or whatever. And it's like, right. So there's that type of social retardation where that's the only way you can talk to people, interact with people. Um, and that's acceptable in paranormal world, unfortunately. So, but you would say, well, that's not just here, you know, I mean, that's not just in the paranormal, by the way. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, pretty of much, course, yeah. Yeah. That's every, that's everything. Um, but you had said something, well, it's in everything amateurish. I will say yeah. it's an everything amateurish, and this is is by far amateur. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. but you had said something privately, which is that it's about you know a lot of people want to be heard, they want to be listened to, and yeah. I think that's a big deal. You know, I think I think that's a huge deal, and uh, so when you're listening to people who want to be listened to, don't just try to figure out their motives, but also your motive in listening. And I think if you can figure these two things out, uh, you'll become a better uh, listener and, and you'll have a better radar for BS. That's just my opinion. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's true. Well, I wish we had Maggie Jackson in a way here to talk about, uh, you know, that that computer or sl- human slash computer slash human interfacing uh, going on because I think – like many people in in this subject who who uh, look into it with a, a certain degree of seriousness, I think that the internet has ultimately hurt this field. It's been helpful in the the sharing of information. Uh, the problem is is that now we've got all these people claiming too much information. Um, you know, uh, that's a problem. But I think also what you find, which is I don't know, kind of a tangent part of the scope here, is that. Uh, I, I'll give you, for instance, I was talking to a coworker of mine today. He he tends bar in the evening, and 
uh, and enjoys that and, and met a girl and, you know, before he said, you know, we, we, we sat down and talked after closing time and she was really nice and she was cute. And, uh, before I know it, you know, we, we're, we're, we're going to have a date. And then, uh, you know, she proceeds to talk, start talking to him about all of these really extraordinarily personal things like, uh, her ex-husband and all the money problems she's destroyed financially. And, and then there was a, a certain point when he, he just said, well, maybe this is not the girl for me. Um, but was going to go through with the date. And then on the night of the date, uh, she texted him and said, uh, I need to cancel tonight. I have to be alone with my thoughts. <laughs> and so his answer was, uh, go fuck yourself. And, uh, and on from there it went, uh, that was, that was pretty much the end of the story. But I look at that and I go, you know, this whole notion of social ineptitude for people who interact more through Twitter, Facebook, these kind of things where it seems like a lot of people out there in cyberland are wearing their hearts on their sleeves and and giving it all away, giving every intimate detail of their life. I am at Borders getting the new, you know, uh, Twilight book. I, I mean, every every aspect of some people's lives is out there on the net. And so, <laughs> as it pertains to this field, uh, it, it's the same kind of thing. It's kind of like people know how to open up and talk to people on the net. But there's also the other side of that coin, which is, like you had said to me last night on the phone, somebody actually has to sit down and type a, a comment, like some of the two or three that we got on the message board when it was wide open. Like that takes effort to do that and hit send. And so ultimately, when you look at that, you've got to go, that person really doesn't have much to do. <laughs> You know, there's not much going on there if you're going to take that kind of effort to to do that. But I, I, I feel like Maggie really hit it on the head where the social, like 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 the social fabric is tearing because if 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 the communication is there online, it kind of lubricates people differently in in a in a face to face type of way. Because they're so out there on the internet, they feel like they could be out there personally. I mean, do you see that at all in in just general human interaction that people are more, I don't know, more open, more more talkative in deeper ways when maybe they should be a bit more reserved in how they approach somebody? Um, I don't I don't know about deeper. I don't know because they don't go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't left my house in days. Um, no, I mean, <laughs> I, well, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think the online thing, I mean, that, that to me clicks in with my shtick of what the internet really is, which is the unconscious, you know, while you would say wanting connection, wanting to be listened to, I would say wanting oneness, you know, we want that instantaneous being heard and hearing other people. We want that instantaneously, but we want it at a distance because um, to actually have it is to go deeper, is to, I mean, the second you have like a real human interaction, 
uh, then you've got follow-up questions <laughs> and they might be uncomfortable, like, right. you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. so yeah. being behind a keyboard is very comfortable. Um, the anonymity. You know, yeah. The anonymity is... and the control, the fact that you don't have to answer anyone's questions, you can just throw out whatever you want to throw out. And it doesn't even matter what somebody says in response. If you're saying something challenging, for instance, and somebody hits you up with facts and then your, your response can either be to those facts or it can just be go screw yourself, you know, and either one is the same to the computer, <laughs> you know, computer right, right, care what right. You type, so it's all, it's all how, how lazy right. you are. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I mean, there's also a disconnect in I mean, isn't there a disconnect from what an online interaction would be versus an in-person interaction? I mean, for the, I think the majority of people out there, I think would not say certain things, uh, in a social, you know, face-to-face social situation that they would say online in, in a nanosecond. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I think that's a very real thing. And so as all that applies to the paranormal, I think, again, you will get a lot of people at, say, a UFO con or something like that that wouldn't necessarily start talking about, although they certainly could at a UFO convention, and certainly the place to do it is to talk uh, about experiences, sightings, evidence, whatever. But I think people are a lot more apt to put their account of a sighting, an abduction, a, a whatever, visitation online. Because like you say, there's that anonymity. There's that wall between you can't know who I am. Uh, you know, there's that distance. But it also lacks, like you said, the ability to further question that if they decide to drop out at any point, that's it. The conversation's over. You know, I think that's a, that could be a bad problem. Um, just for the simple sake that you get bit parts of a story and you don't really know the background of that person. You don't know. Well, you can't even get a feel for them. You can't get a feel for, you know, unless it goes on so long that you pick up on their BSing you or themselves or whatever, unless it's completely obvious. You know, it's kind of hard to read. You, well, you can't read body language, for instance, which is, what, 80-something percent of how we actually perceive each other? Right. So you, you're right. taking away all of that. Yeah, yeah. It's a weird thing online. It's it's um, it, it leaves a lot to – I mean, it's great in a lot of ways because you can access so much information. You can connect with people across the ocean, around the world. Um. But it, it leaves a hell of a lot to be desired, even with Skype, even Skype. You know, we're talking. I'm looking right at you right now, and we're talking. You're in New York. I'm in Maryland. And, you know, it's still, you know, even if you would hang up with me and call someone in China, which we've we've had happen, as you'll remember, Hung Kim called us during a show one day. Uh, I mean, do you think Hong Kim would walk up to me on the street and say, uh, hello, can you teach me English? No. Um, but he'll do it on Skype. <laughs> I mean, there's something a little, a little, I think it's easier for people to put it out there, you know, online. And, uh, well, the question yeah, for me you is, know, what is that online mean? does, you know, what does that mean? What does, what does it really it? tell you? It doesn't it tell you that, that the first thing that you do online is objectify the person because right. you're dealing with right. an object first. The person come is secondary to the object. So if you were out on the street, you would have all of these social etiquettes going on in your head and, and embarrassment and all of that. And you don't want to intrude on someone else. And, 
you know, all right. of that. Well, that just goes away because first you're dealing with a computer and then you realize, oh, yeah, there's a person there. All right. I mean, in, in a <laughs> yeah. way, it makes you a psycho for like a split second, the computer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But um, I don't know. I, I, I just I think a lot about how the online interaction in tandem with people talking about this subject and, and just how that works. I mean, uh, uh, I mean, I'll give you guys a great example. And this is a, this is kind of a twofold portion of the story here. I would say back in the late eighties, early nineties, I was working at a, a production house and the man that I worked with, uh, there who owned the place had built a flying saucer that he used um, as a stage prop and it was rented several times. And uh, this is a prop and production house, uh, event management, booking, entertainment, that sort of thing. And uh, this thing had been all over the country. It had been shipped all over the country and it was falling apart. And, I don't remember whatever happened to it, but that, I mean, that business is gone. So chances are, if it was in such disrepair, it probably got either trashed or pieced out in, in, uh, in use for just the deluxe sand that it was made from. And maybe, I don't know, 15, 12 years ago, I was at a MUFON meeting, uh, and Graham Bethune, if anybody, if that rings a bell for anybody out there, um, Graham Bethune was a pilot, uh, who, uh, flew in the military and he had a sighting, uh, of an object. And I always thought a lot of Graham's story, uh, I believe he's passed away not horribly long ago. Uh, we thought a lot of his story until I went to a MUFON meeting and he was there and, uh, he told us about his sighting and I was really interested in talking to him about it after it was all over. But, um, then he started into his slide presentation. And uh, Graham had been eating too much ice cream out of George Adamski's bowl, uh, if I can put it that way. He went into uh, Venusian contactees, and he had spoken and been with uh, or around Venusians. Yeah, I mean, it just went, it went completely south uh, for me. And I was like, yeah, I don't – well, <laughs> towards the end, he went into a slide – of the flying saucer from the production company in Baltimore lit up like a goddamn disco and uh, and said that this was Venusian. This was shot somewhere down south, and he had gotten these photographs. And, and if you were interested in a copy, he'd sell you a set for $10. And so I went up to him after it was all over, and I said, uh, Hi, Mr. Bethune. My name's Jeff Ritzman, and... Uh, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about that set of photographs here you have on the table. Oh, yeah. What, what would you like to know? I said, uh, can you tell me who shot these pictures? And he says, no, I actually I can't because the guy wants to remain anonymous. I said, well, that's probably because it's a prop. I said, in fact, uh, I could drive you to a warehouse where it's probably sitting in pieces right now. And he said, what? And I said, yeah, that, that thing hanging on the under, underside of there, it's called a jet eye. Uh, it's a metal ball and two hemispheres actually put together with uh, lenses inside of it. They're blue, and basically when you haze up a room with a hazer or a fog machine, 
uh, it sends down beams of light, blue light, in all sorts of weird spirally directions, and it spins and twirls, and it's a common club light that you'll see if you guys go to nightclubs at all. You've seen them a million times. Well, Graham didn't have a great deal to say to me after that. He kind of walked away from me, and that was it. Did you buy a picture? Those pictures a bit... I bought the set, yes, um, because because I had to take him to show uh, at the time to to my uh, my my business partner and say, look at this, look at this, I bought these at a UFO thing. I mean, he was tickled about it. I mean, he's like, you know, he said, obviously, this was early on. These pictures are not new because this thing's been in disrepair for at least a couple of years. Uh, but it had it had made the rounds. Put it that way. So on the internet, um, everybody pretty much knows when they see these photographs that they're crap because uh, someone actually did the due diligence of taking one of the shots and lightening up the photographs so that you can see that in the blackness that surrounds this amazing flying saucer is lighting truss and light cans and a ceiling because it's hanging from a ceiling because it's a stage prop. Okay. So, thread comes up on above top secret, and in there I see this, these pictures. You know, these are the greatest pictures. Blah blah blah. And I said, uh, yeah, that uh, that's not real. <laughs> and and then someone else, uh, you know, graciously went on on the net and hunted down the picture that someone had brightened up to show the lighting truss and the light cans hanging from the truss and the ceiling and this thing suspended. And the guy who posted them said, and I quote, man, this is a disinformation site. I mean, you're looking at your flying saucer that you presented online as a compelling piece of evidence. You are shown point blank, undeniably, that this is a stage prop hanging from lighting truss, and you ain't backing down. Really? If I was in person, they would back down. They would go, oh, Jesus, because I've done it. (laughs) When I spoke at the UFO Congress in New Jersey, a man came up to me with exactly the same set of pictures. And I told him what it was. And he was, well, his his answer to me was, you destroyed my proof. (laughs) I said, well, I'm very sorry, but I... What what kind of person would I be just to let you believe that? You know, Paul Harris so, wouldn't back down. <laughs> well, and there you are. She would agree with uh, you that they're fake, and then she'd tell you that she's going to continue to use them. Right. <laughs> but That's I'm what amazed. She told me, everybody. It's what I know. she told me. I know. Um, Paula Harris. Just write that down. Just be sure that her name gets out there. Paula Harris. Because, you know, you see her as, like, a legitimate researcher very often, and she's uh the, the last thing she is, is is a legitimate researcher. But go ahead. Well, let's pronounce her name correctly. Paola. Oh, <laughs> that's right. Anyway. Um, so, you know, it just it fascinates me. And do I think for a minute that this guy is actually in refusal of what's been presented to him, what I've said to him? Um, no, I don't. Yeah. He made the statement. uh that could I show him this uh, a piece of this machinery that would make the light look the way it does? In other words, in tight beams. 
because this is obviously this is in a club or in, a, in an arena, and if there's a hazer that's been running, you start a hazer three or four hours before a band hits a stage, so that you're well hazed by the time the crowd gets in, the band gets on stage. Then you've got those wonderful crisp beams hitting down all over the audience, all over the stage. That's what a hazer's for. And you know, I made the statement: if that hazer wasn't there, or if that fog machine was not running. You wouldn't see those beams quite as defined as you are. You're seeing them because a hazer is running. Um, and it just, I mean, it just, God smacked me. I was like, really? You're going to be shown all of this. You're going to be shown. I actually put a picture of the jet eye device up on, um, up on the board. I said, this is your thing. And when you look at the picture of this, uh, I'll post this on the message board. When you actually see this photograph, you can see this dotted black ball dotted with white or with blue lights underneath with blue rays coming out hence the name jet eye and uh you can see in the middle of this ball is a blank area where there's no blue dots that's where it comes apart so you can change the light bulbs <laughs> you're going to deny this really no i think in person that person would say ah oh, Ah, really? Shit. But online, it's a completely different matter. Then it turns into accusations and and all of that. It's just there's a completely different venue of interaction online as opposed to in person. Because in person, like you said, the body language right there is just everything. And you're showing someone evidence right to their face in person. Is, seems completely different from the online interaction. I mean, just completely different. Uh, and I think someone in the anonymous situation is uh, is at that point almost enticed to keep the argument going. <laughs> well, there's definitely <laughs> you know? there's something about being online where even when you're in a conversation, you want to win. I think it brings right. out some sort of predatory instinct in us where – even just the simplest thing, I think because you've got that extra time to think before you type, it's like, how do uh-huh. I how do I win? It's not even, what are we talking about anymore? <laughs> it's just exactly. how do exactly. I win. It's sparring, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I'm not going to say that that doesn't happen face-to-face. I mean, we've both encountered that in the paranormal circles face-to-face. We've encountered sparring of sorts. Um, but it tends to... Definitely not drag on quite as long. Yeah, but you can see that somebody's nuts when they do that in person, you know? (laughs) Online, it could be anybody. (laughs) Everybody's nuts online. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Um, yeah. And and it's, you know, it's unfortunate that we can't get, um, that, that we don't have more conventions where we can all get together and talk about this stuff. I mean, you know, if I ever hit the lottery, you guys can bet that, uh, I'm buying a I'm buying a tour bus, and uh, Jeremy and I are just going to get in a tour bus and drive all over the United States. <laughs> not <laughs> and, like have people, not for any reason, just to do it. Just to do it, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Not I to mean, tour, we're going like not to talk to any of you, just to just to do it. Yeah, no, completely no. unrelated to this. <laughs> I mean, we'll go pick Phil and Brogno up in New York, and we'll like you know Scoop. go to Golf Breeze. Sure, we'll cruise out to San Francisco Bay and pick up Jacques and. Head over to Skinwalker Ranch or something. I mean, you know, it, it, it would just be great to get out and and have people 
like just interact uh, rather than it, it all being online all the time. But uh, yeah, hey, Whitley, great guest, eh? <laughs> How did we get on this? How did uh, I derail this conversation? Well, because you can't stop talking for 40 minutes. That's, I know. That's what happened. <laughs> like, Very ch- I'm, t- I'm, I'm full of goddamn caffeine. I got to tell you. <laughs> uh, I, I do want to mention, though, that that weird hallucination thing that happened to me. I want to just explain what happened when Whitley was talking about the the face of evolution, blah, blah, blah. Um. My computer screen, like, became animated. It, like, came out in, like, giant chunks and started to rearrange itself. Like, my screen just became blocky chunks of itself and started floating around and rearranging itself. And then it went completely black. And I thought, oh, crap, I've lost the call. My computer is on the fritz. What just happened? And then somehow I realized, well, that didn't just happen. Uh, there's no way that that happened. And then I, I don't know if I thought that first or, or after, but my, my screen came back on and then, oh, I think I did think that first because I was still hearing you guys. Like the call was still going. I was just having this visual hallucination and, um, and then it, you know, the screen came back. I've never had that happen to me before. Nothing else <laughs> in my vision, like around the computer screen was going nutty. Just the computer. I thought that was, uh, completely weird. Completely weird because shouldn't everything around me have gone crazy? Like, shouldn't, you know, it's not like I've got this giant screen taking up all of my eyeball space, you know? Were you uh, in stare mode at the screen? Stare mode? I don't think so. No? Hmm. I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't remember if I was staring at the screen or not. I mean, I was hmm. intently listening, you know? Yeah, yeah. So it, it's well, possible I was in stare mode as I was listening. Are you sure it was a hallucination? Oh, yeah. I'm sure that that didn't happen. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Very weird. Well, I mean, don't these things always happen at at inopportune times or times when you're not expecting or ready for it? (laughs) That seems to be the, you know... Uh, that seems to be part of how it works. Uh, you know, it's 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 uh, happens at those odd moments where you really can't do it. I mean, look at us sitting in the fart chair or fart chairs now that you've got your own here at the house and I get mine back. Nice. Uh, and, and we see the uh, the white light on the ceiling, mm-hmm. um, which I, I don't remember if we talked about last show or not. Um, I don't think we did because we were saving it for the short film, but we can talk about it if you want. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a light on the ceiling. um uh, or just below the ceiling in uh, our living room. That's uh, somewhat in the same spot. My wife saw it before I did. You've talked about it on the uh, show. It's that light that Jeff's We've talked about, about it, yeah. They see it out of the periphery, periphery of their vision. They look up. It's not there. Right. Uh, and Jeremy saw it. And, um, and, and you know what was really interesting was our reaction was not, oh, let's go get a camera and set it up and – you know, let's uh, you know, let's let's get the 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 laser thermometer and put it on that part of the ceiling and see if it's there's a temperature variance. You know, it's like it's like we just kind of looked at each other. Did you see that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad somebody saw it. Blah blah blah. <laughs> and back to watching TV or recording or whatever we were doing. Yeah, we were watching yeah. TV, and it, yeah, it was just like yeah. Now yeah. we don't feel crazy anymore. I mean, we talked about it a little bit. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But yeah, no, it's funny because when you Isn't have something it weird? like that happen, well, I mean, you get this all the time, right? Where people say, well, if I were 
being abducted by aliens, I'd, the first thing I do is put a camera in my bedroom or I do this and that and the other thing. You, right. don't, know, you don't know what you would do, you know? Those are all sort of logical yeah. choices that don't apply for some reason. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. It's like the last thing you think but, of is like step one, get camera from room. Well, it's just step like two, train it on the ceiling. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't happen that way. Stop freeze, everyone. I'm going to need to take a statement for, from everybody. We we have a paranormal event here. I mean, that doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm going to need written too. statements. I'll and, tell you, you know, the, yeah. thing, the thing that was really weird to me about it was how big it was. Cause I thought by your description that you were talking about like a little, like a BB sized light or something. Oh no. <laughs> but no, this was like a, almost a fist size light. And it just seemed to be like, like I've been describing it like waving like seaweed or something, but maybe it's more like a flame. Maybe it just was sort of flaming at me. Uh, mm-hmm. But it was just doing that. And it seemed like it was doing it for a while. Bef- you know, like one of those things that must've been happening. And then I saw it, you know what I mean? Like it was happening yeah. before I saw it. It wasn't like, it just started happening and I looked up. It was like, I'm watching TV. I see this thing out of my periphery. I, I don't look up because I'm just lazy, <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but I'm watching it out of my periphery, just flaming or waving or whatever. And it wiggles. Look, yeah. yeah. And then to where it's like no longer, I can no longer ignore it because it's so big. And, and I look up and it's not there. And I do the sideways glance at Jeff and don't say anything. And just like, you, you saw it too, didn't you? <laughs> Because I was, like, yeah, I was sitting there it. watching I was like, it for yes, a while. I saw it. Of course, I saw it, and I was like, oh, "Yeah, all right. Well, I can't wait for that thing to open up and a, an alien to fall on your floor in, you know, in 2020." <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, very strange. Um, and people, you know, have said, you know, well, put a camera on it. You know, it's like, well, I guess you could try, but we know how that ha- how what what's going to result from that. Well, you know, I'll tell you, I am going to try it. I I know, and you're probably right. You're you're probably exactly right. It probably won't be. I mean, if you can't look at it straight on with your own eyes, um, but for milliseconds, what chance does a camera? And would it even register on a camera? Is it purely a sensory type of thing? I don't know. Uh, It'd be interesting to put a camera there. I have no idea what the significance of that spot in the room would be. I mean, uh, it's kind of hard to ignore. It's right over. Your chair it's, in your it's eyes, sight to your TV. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. I'll tell you yeah. what's interesting about uh, it. The thing that we were talking about was whether or not it's responding to thought. And uh, my response to that, and I'll throw that out there for the public to mull over, is that if the research showing that we actually think just prior to consciously thinking that we think mm-hmm. is true, <laughs> that is like a millisecond before we actually consciously think something, we're actually thinking it. Then could this thing be responding to that millisecond beforehand? Is that because it was so, it's so instantaneous, you know, Oh yeah. That it just disappears. Cause it's not like you look up, it's gone. You look down, it's there. It's like, you look up, it's gone. It's gone. So if it is responding to thought, then is it responding to unconscious thought? I think that's a large uh, possibility. I think that's a clue. It's an interesting, interesting thought. I mean, uh, what what gets me is that Lisa and I, when we see it now, have started jotting down, like, what were we doing? What were we talking about? Where were we looking? And um, and as of yet, there's not really a pattern of what we're talking about, if we're talking at all. Uh, what we're thinking about, nothing. It just seems to happen. I mean, I I woke up on the couch one night, and that's across the room from the chair, and I was laying there. I woke up, and uh, 
I don't know, I think uh, Kitchen Nightmares was on BBC America or something. So I was watching that, and uh, I got up, I got a soda, I laid back down on the couch, and there it was, kind of uh, wiggling on the ceiling. And this time, it it actually moved towards the hallway a bit, and then back, and then moved towards the hallway again, and back. And I mean, I said, that's it, I'm going to bed. <laughs> I'm going to bed, that's it. I see it. And if it's you, really if, there. And if it's you not see it small. out of your periphery and Lisa's in the room, can you say, Lisa, look at it? And have you tried this experiment? No. No. Um, well, I know for a fact that the very first time that she saw it, she was sitting in my chair and, I mean, she was looking dead forward at the wall. And she says, are you seeing this light on the ceiling? And I said, no. And to which she got very pale and she goes, I think I don't. And I was like, what? <laughs> I mean, she stopped mid sentence. She goes, you don't see that. I'm not looking at it. It's up there. And she pointed and I'm looking and I see nothing. She says, look at the wall. And I looked at the wall and I said, honey, I don't see anything. She's like, am I having a stroke? <laughs> you know, am I having a stroke? Is that what's going on here? What's why am I seeing a light? And it's bright, and it's really there, and it's not on the ceiling. It's, like, in the air below the ceiling. I said, well, I don't see anything. And she got really irritated um, until I saw it that night on the couch. And I was like, yeah, you're not kidding, and it's not small. And we've seen it randomly ever since then in that spot. Um, And we've, yes, ruled out every possible refraction, um, you know, a fork on the table, my wristwatch, my pocket watches. No, uh, it's not any of that stuff. I mean, uh, it was it was nighttime. We were watching TV. I don't even know. Blinds are down. Yeah, I mean, there you might know. have been a lamp next to you on, maybe. Yes. But that's, yeah, there I mean, is. You can yeah. account for every light. I mean, no, this was its own thing. <laughs> it I mean, is. It is for it sure. It came and, and stayed and then long enough for you to notice it. And then when you look up, it's gone. Right. That just So I don't know. I don't know what that what what that is. Um but I'll put a camera on it and we'll see what happens. I mean I don't put know. Put a camera That's, on it and then what? Just waste tape and keep buying tape forever? Uh yeah, just keep it? Well, you know, if if I got a two hour tape I can put a ca- I can put a cam on it for two hours, you know, run it at two o'clock in the morning and just let it go till four or something. And just see. I mean just see. I don't know. When we ran the uh the Mac uh, I used to run that all night on Ustream TV, and some of the listeners used to, you know, pop in and and check out what was going in in this room in the guitar room, and uh, and everybody that had a comment to say said that about three three thirty they heard a sound uh, in the room that should have woke a whole house up, mm-hmm. which is like some kind of bang, and uh, I have heard that bang. And I still still don't know what that is. <laughs> so is it connected to the light in the living room? I don't know. But there's definitely odd sounds in this house, and there's definitely a light phenomena in this house for sure. It'd be great to get it on, on film. It'd be, it'd be, at least I'd be able to look at it. Like in detail, I'd be able to look at it. It would be fantastic. Indeed. Well, alrighty then. Should we uh... – should we call it quits? Although I, I do want to say, uh, before we do call it quits, um, next week's guest will be Deb Cobble, who was, of course, Kathy Davis from 
um, Bud Hopkins Intruders. Right. That was her pseudonym. She is famously the, the woman who, you know, had her alien baby or, you know, hybrid baby or whatever it is, her baby stolen <laughs> out of her womb by aliens. You know, this is the encapsulation of her story uh, that she was the first woman to ever report that or whatever. And uh, we've had her on before to talk about this stuff. I, she wants to talk about it again. She's really upset because a reporter uh, did a story on her, put that in there, put her, you know, where she works, uh, her Jesus. work address, what she does for a living, you know, all this stuff in this article. And this was not just some mainstream reporter. This was a reporter from like a paranormal outfit. I'm not sure which organization. <laughs> Um, but she'll tell us all about it. But in any event, part of her really just anger over all of this is that she doesn't necessarily believe that that alien baby stuff is true. That was all Bud Hopkins theory. Uh. And I think she so I, I guess what I'm saying is I, I feel like it's a weird thing. On the one hand, we've got this hypnosis thing that, that you and I are sort of tearing apart slowly but surely. Um, yeah. And this feels like a part of it. It feels like, okay, we have exposed David Jacobs. We just had Whitley Strieber on to further expose how hypnosis is bad for this field. you know. And now here comes the poster child for this stuff to come on and tell us that that stuff isn't, you know, isn't true. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, it does seem like a build toward the inevitability of – Okay, it's not just David Jacobs. We can't scapegoat him. We have to do away with hypnosis. It's like, yes, people have been talking about this for years, but now it's finally, I think, culminating in uh, this inevitability where you just can't ignore it anymore. It's got to go. So that's on the one hand, deconstructing the abduction myth, which I think next week's episode will further do. But on the other... um, I don't even want to talk about this person's experiences because they're private, but uh, a trustable source, let's say, came to me or came to me. I I went to this person, actually, um, to try to get him on the show, and they don't want to come on the show, but told me their story. And basically, this person who doesn't know Jeff had uh, their experiences change um, to where hooded people, people wearing some sort of, you know, dark cloak are coming and having sort of conversational encounters. Not not so much a two-way street conversation, but, you know, just like I'm here to explain some things to you as opposed to yeah. sit here and pay attention to this, which was previously what this person's experiences were. So we've got Susan Kornacki, right, who had that happen to her, if we'll recall. We have Jeff having that happen to him. We have this person uh, happen, happening to this person, is this a new trend? Are we seeing two new trends? Are we seeing a trend away from the abduction myth and and then within the phenomena on the human side? You know, on the human side, are we deconstructing the myths we've built? And on the phenomena side, are we seeing a new wrinkle in the phenomena uh, presenting itself? Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah, it is. And And I guess we should say that I did, uh, after we stopped recording, <clears throat> excuse me, I did uh, ask Whitley and I related to him about that, the man uh, in the black uh, shroud. And uh, he, I don't know, he gave me some stuff to think about because I explained to him a lot more than what I have on the show about all of that. But he seemed to think that this was a, a dead man. 
and uh and i've uh, i actually i think almost in the first conversation that jeremy and i had when i told him about this um i said i i didn't think he was necessarily alive so i i think i i think i don't know what i think but um i, I found it interesting that whitley would say that i mean barring the obvious imagery that comes forth when you're talking about a, a guy in a black shroud that looks like a well a death shroud <laughs> i mean what else could one think but it's it's uh certainly the narrative that goes along with that is not one of death or uh that sort of thing but i do uh i do think he could be right because that's definitely the feeling that i got that this person wasn't necessarily alive and i guess we should say that um in the sense of of all disclosure here that we did uh or you did uh ring uh, Jacques Fillet back up after we concluded our interview with him and told him about this this man and a little bit of my interactions with him and he said that he had not heard of the name that I ascribed to this man but he would look into it so we'll see what happens with that yeah oh you know just as a bit of fun uh you also asked Whitley about Terence McKenna yeah <laughs> and what was Whitley's response he was like something like oh, you know I really like Terrence he was you know he was a really good guy I really miss him you know he thought I was a blithering idiot but that's okay <laughs> yeah <him>. yeah <laughs> Terrence McKenna thought yeah. Whitley was a blithering idiot can you imagine that I, I I don't know if that's true or not because the one uh um uh, conference that I know Whitley must have been there for uh, that Terrence, at, at some point again, just like with Jacques, I think Whitley and, and Terrence must have shared a stage somewhere because he definitely mentions Whitley a couple of times in the uh, in the discussion. And uh, and he said, I mean, again, I think I said to Whitley on the phone, I said, you know, I heard him say, you don't want Whitley Strieber to walk through the the purple door and never be seen again. You want to walk through the purple door and never be seen again. Um so I don't know. I mean, it, 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 I don't. I don't. I don't know. I mean, it's like the two people you would most like to hear the conversation. You'd love to have been a fly on the wall between a conversation of Whitley Strieber and Terrence McKenna, or Terrence McKenna and Jacques Vallee. Um And we'll we'll never know those those conversations what they might have been or could have been. But uh, uh, it, it certainly is. Uh, uh, I, I lament the passing of uh, of the great Bard McKenna. Every day, <laughs> I really do. God damn it! I mean, I'd have him on this show in no less than a nanosecond. But uh, but we will be having, uh, or we're trying to uh, organize this uh, little roundtable DMT thing that we'd like to have uh, Mr. Dennis McKenna, Doctor Dennis McKenna, back for. Um, so look for that to be coming up. I don't know in the future. We're trying to get that's going to be a really tricky one to set up, but we're working on it. Indeed, and Lee will be joining us next week as well, right? You're, uh, That's correct. Lee Townsend will be coming. Partner, yeah, and uh, and we'll probably spend a good portion of time with uh, you and I both talking to him about his further stuff that we didn't get to on his his introductory show. Cool. Well, maybe yeah. if it's a super long show, we'll make it a two parter or do do a special thing for uh, subscribers. Yeah, neat. Sounds good. All right, my friend. Take care, everyone. Until next time, gobble, gobble. Happy Thanksgiving. Yeah, hey, have a happy Thanksgiving. Yeah, there you are. Does anyone celebrate that? (laughs) Uh, Or do we just eat a lot of turkey? I eat a lot of turkey. Very nice. And cranberries.
and cranberries. <laughs> good night. And good luck. <laughs>